So turn with me in your Bibles, if you have one, uh, and you should do, (laughs) Uh, turn with me to Romans chapter 8, verse 26, Romans 8, verse 26, and before we read, uh, let's let's pray together. Father, uh, once again, as we have just prayed, breathe on us, come by your Spirit, and uh, enliven our hearts as we receive your word. May the word fall in good soil, for Jesus' sake. Amen. So Paul says in verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So the Apostle Paul has been uh, seeking to give encouragements to believers uh, in the church in Rome. And uh, and that's in the midst of uh, some of their sufferings. If you look back in verse 18, uh, you'll see that... uh, He mentions sufferings. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And uh, and so those sufferings take various forms uh, as Christians. Uh, They can be internal sufferings. um, What you might call internal sufferings. uh, The kind that comes as a result of dealing with sin in your life. And uh, we have the help of the Holy Spirit to help us to overcome sin and uh, kill sin, put it to death. But there can also be external sufferings at the hands of others, uh, whether from authorities or from friends or from neighbors or from colleagues. And these people just give Christians a hard time simply for being Christian. And Paul's uh, basic thesis is that actually none of that matters compared to, that's verse 18 again, none of that matters, uh, is not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So what Paul is doing here is he's acknowledging the suffering, acknowledging the trials of being a Christian in the Roman culture, and it It's true for us today as well. To acknowledge the sufferings and the trials and the difficulties that we face. And yet to recognize that none of that's uh, worth comparing with the glory that is coming to us. And so Paul wants to encourage everybody uh, to remember the glory that is ours in Jesus Christ and that's held out for us. 
And uh, last week we looked at the, one of the great encouragements that Paul gives to the Romans. Uh, the expectation of uh, a glorious revelation, an unveiling of the sons of God. Uh, a great revelation, as it were, a kind of, uh, almost a, a victory parade. As God reveals all his people. In all, in all his glory, he comes and he blesses all his people who have suffered for his sake. And one day they are raised to life. As it were, he says to the rest of creation, these are my children, these are my sons, my daughters. They're all mine. And don't they look beautiful? God's people. And so we have a great deal uh, to look for, to look forward to, that this glory that God has in himself is a glory that you and I and all of us together will share with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And we will enjoy that for, forever. And it will be a public demonstration of, of his adoption of us as children. You know, we are, it's one of the glorious things about the gospel benefits, isn't it? The gospel comes to us, and through the gospel, as we are bonded to Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, we are adopted into his family. And forever we are called the children of God. And this will be the great unveiling of these adopted children to the all of creation, that God's people belong to God and it will involve the whole created order which itself will be freed from bondage to decay and it too will enter into a glorious new freedom now because of this uh, all this expectation Christians now live with hope even though they may be facing terrible troubles and terrible sufferings but it's nothing those sufferings, hard though they may be, are nothing compared to the glory that awaits us. So we should be sustained in hope. We should be encouraged as we keep going in the Christian life, as we persevere. But of course, Paul's not finished there. He's still got, still quite a few verses to go in chapter 8. And uh, he's not finished. He has some more encouragement to give to us uh, for those of us who are suffering. And the two things we're going to look at this evening are, first of all, the continuing help of the Holy Spirit. The continuing help of the Holy Spirit, especially in prayer. And then, secondly, to, for God to encourage us by painting a picture of the vast panorama of God's saving work from eternity past to eternity future to show that God has been doing a great work throughout history, in saving his people. God has this marvelous purpose for his people and for his glory. And he shows us all the steps that are going to make that happen. So let's uh, look at those two things now. First of all, the help of the Holy Spirit. 
And he's got more to say. We've already spoken a great deal about the Holy Spirit, the help of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in overcoming sin and so on, that we live by the Spirit, and by the Spirit we are able to put to death uh, those deeds, uh, evil deeds. But the Spirit has more help to give. And that Holy Spirit comes to us in our weakness. And if you know that you're a sinner and you continue to sin, then you'll know that you are a weak person. I'm a weak person. We're all weak sinners. But it's really important that we grasp just how weak we are so that we can receive the help of the Holy Spirit. I don't know what, about you, but I have a tendency, uh, a, a temptation, I think, to, to think that there are times when I can be strong. We often say that about ourselves in difficult times. We've got to be strong in these difficult times. And sometimes we can think, well, when I'm being strong, uh, God is most pleased with me when I'm strong all the time. But here we find Paul making a blanket statement about the human condition. That we are, in fact, weak. That we are uh, uh, afflicted with infirmity. King James Version puts, puts it like that. Infirmity. Uh, there are lots of hospitals in the United Kingdom that are called infirmaries. Why? Because people are sick and weak and they need help. They're infirm. And we are sinners who are sick and weak by ourselves. And uh, we need, need help. And so that's what Paul is saying to these Christians. And he's saying that to us. We're all sick and weak and helpless in ourselves And this is what being a sinful creature uh, does to us. It's as though we're languishing in a bed, bed, sick and helpless against the sufferings and oppositions that we face. What does that sickness uh, cause us to to happen in our lives? Well, one of the things it makes us do is it makes us unable to pray properly. Some of you are struggling with things today and you don't know how to pray. Well, Paul acknowledges that. Sometimes in all our infirmity, we just don't know what to pray for. You've maybe seen this kind of effect in physical illness. When somebody in your family, maybe who has a fever or something, for for whatever reason, they're just not able to speak in a way that makes sense when they're sick, and they've got a delirium of sickness. And maybe they mumble away, and sometimes they make sense, and sometimes they don't make sense, and sometimes they're just mumbling because they're sick. And this is the kind of picture that's painted of the poor Christian who is infirm like this and sick. And they pray, and sometimes their prayers don't make sense. Or maybe there's a turning to God, and a, a genuine and faithful turning to God, and yet... All that seems to come out is what all, to all intents and purposes, seems like a, an unintelligent moan to God. So this is the picture that Paul is painting uh, to the, uh, of the true situation of the Christian who is saved and yet is wrestling with the effects of sin in their lives and in his or her body. It's the 
it's the effect, and one of the effects of it is this inability to pray properly or pray anything that seems remotely wise or sensible. And it's at this point he says, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. Because it's at this point, in the midst of our weakness, that the Holy Spirit is active in our lives. What's he doing? Well, he's interceding for us. In other words, he is praying for us. If you look at verse uh, 27, he says this, He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now here's an amazing thing. We are, I hope, used to the idea that the Lord Jesus Christ is now in heaven. He has ascended into heaven. And he, in heaven, intercedes for us. He prays for us. He seeks to bring the resources of heaven to us. And here also is the Holy Spirit praying for us here in us. So there's prayer in heaven for us. And there's prayer within us by the indwelling Holy Spirit who helps us to pray. And so, even though we find it difficult when we come to God to find the right words to pray and to make any sense of it at all, the Holy Spirit is gloriously at work in us. Not through our words, but you know, even through our groans. And it is, in our, it is our groans he's talking about. The Holy Spirit, of course, is never at a loss to know what to pray for, while we are. In our groaning, he prays for us. He knows what to pray for. And that's the, that's the most amazing thing, isn't it? Uh, those intercessions of the Holy Spirit, which are, are most present, present when we are most unable to say the right thing are heard and answered by the Father, our Father in heaven. And what verse 27 is, is getting at is because, uh, because there, that's what verse 27 is getting at because there we see the most wonderfully perfect match between the intercession of the Holy Spirit on our behalf and the will of God. Let me read that again. And he who searches hearts knows What is the mind of the Spirit? Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. God supplies our needs. Isn't that a wonderful encouragement to us? Aren't we blessed by even just thinking about that? that Through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives as Christians, we get the help that we need because the Holy Spirit is asking for it on our behalf. Even though you and I Uh, All we may be able to do is simply groan before God. The Holy Spirit is seeking what we need so that we can be blessed. So I I say to you this evening, even if you sometimes don't know the words to say to God, don't turn away from God. Turn to God. Mumble those groans to God. Because you can be assured that the Holy Spirit is helping you and praying for what you need. He takes up In words, what you cannot say in words. 
And he blesses you. So keep turning to God in the midst of your struggles. So the glorious help of the Holy Spirit. Here's a second thing I want to think about here. About the ends and the means of salvation. As you look at verses 28 to 30. We now begin to see the bigger picture of what God is doing. We see our lives in the, in the middle of suffering of various kinds. And sometimes uh, we get very blinkers and that's all we can see. We just see our struggles. But we need to see that those struggles are not a random sequence of lurches from one crisis to another. With the Holy Spirit just reacting to events. As they come to us. But actually it is these events that go together. To to make up an overarching purpose of God in our lives. God is at work from beginning to end. And what we have is this glorious statement in verse 28. We know and we know that for those who love God all things Work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Probably one of the most quoted verses in the Bible. Often misquoted. And sometimes it turns up in many guises. Uh, One of the strangest in my experience was an estate agent uh, through whom Susan and I were trying to buy our first home in Glasgow. And uh, he quoted, he wasn't a Christian. But he quoted this verse, all things work together for good, don't they? And so he had some great pearl of wisdom to tell us. (laughs) Uh, But Paul is not using it as a mere platitude to keep people's chins up during a setback. Rather he is saying it with the conviction of someone who has come to believe in the all overarching purposes of God. So first of all, who is he talking about in that verse 28? Does he mean this to be true for everyone? Well, no. There are two qualifiers that he gives at the end of the verse, which are really two sides of the same thing. First of all, it's true for those who love God, those who have come to know God through Jesus Christ, those whose hearts have been changed from enmity towards God to devotion to God. So one time we were rebellious and enemies of God and we have become Christians and now we love God. We are his friends. He calls us his friends. And that's in our subjective experience. That's what we become. We become lovers of God. And Paul is saying, this is true for all those who love God in this way. And the other side uh, is something objective, what God has done outside of them. That he has called them according to his purpose. Those people he has called according to his purpose. So internally we love God, subjectively we love God, but externally God has called you according to his purpose. So the people he's talking about here are Christians. All things work together for the good of those who love God, And are called according to his purpose. So it's not true of everyone. Just those who have come to know God through Jesus Christ. 
What's he talking about then? So that's who he's talking about, Christians. What's he talking about? Is he just talking about some events in our lives? Is he only talking about things we can understand? No. He's talking about all things. All things work together for good. All things, yes. Every single thing. Every single little detail in your life. All things, big or small. All of these, in the plan of God, work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That changes your perspective on everything, doesn't it? Everything that happens to you. You say, God is doing something here. God is doing an amazing thing here. And somehow it's all fitting together to God's ultimate purposes. All the things we understand and all the things we don't understand. Every single bit is fitting into this purpose. Now, some, uh, uh, some of us may find this a little disturbing. Some, some of us may feel that we have suffered more than others. Some may even feel that you're suffering now and you don't understand it and it doesn't make sense. And even though we're Christians, we can't make sense of, of what's happening to us. But here again, we need to just have Jesus Christ as our reference point. Was his life purposeful? Yes, it was. He was sent into the world by his Father, and he willingly forsook the glories of heaven to enter into the miseries of this life, as our catechism says, to suffer, and in the end to shed his blood for those whom he and his Father loved. Now, was any of that easy for Jesus? No, of course not. Look at the sweat, the drops of bloody sweat pouring from his forehead in the Garden of Gethsemane. The suffering that he endured at the prospect of the suffering that was going to come on the cross. Was it enjoyable? Absolutely not for Jesus. Look at his sufferings as he is flogged, as he is beaten. And then he is hung on a cross. And he endures that separation. That sense of the loss of fellowship from his father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he did it. And endured. For a reason. Was it purposeful? Yes, of course it was. All of that was purposeful. For our salvation. And for his glory. And that's the thing that is said of Jesus, that he, for the glory set before him, he endured the cross. Hebrews chapter 12, 3, I think. For the glory set before him, he endured the cross. He endured the suffering because he could see the bigger picture of what God is doing. So that's a reference point, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we see in verses 29 and 30 how this purpose works out in our lives. Because this wonderful chain of events that Paul describes, the so-called golden chain of of salvation that was coined by some Puritans uh, 
many, many years ago, centuries ago. Uh, verse 29 says this, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Do you see the chain? Foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, and glorification. A chain of events that takes you all the way through. So let's just talk briefly about each of those links in the chain. First of all, God's foreknowledge. In other words, God knew those who were his long before they knew him, even before they existed. And notice something uh, very important about this. Uh, This is not... So let me just explain the background to this. There are some Christians who think that, yes, okay, God has foreknowledge. And what that means is he, he looks down the kind of uh, tunnel of history. <laughs> and he looks ahead and he sees, ah, uh, that person is going to have faith. And that person is going to have faith. And th- that person is going to have faith. It's all out of God's control. But I can see all these people are going to have faith. So, from the vantage point of eternity past, God chooses those people who will have faith. That's what our Arminian friends say. And um, they are our friends, but they're wrong on that. Um, Because you notice something very important in this verse. God's foreknowledge, not a foreknowledge of faith, but a foreknowledge of persons, of individuals. He knows them already. There's nothing about their faith in this. He just knows them. And he says, I have chosen them. He knows particular people and he has always known those particular people. And in due time, yes, they will come to faith. But it's because God has foreknown them. The second link in the chain is is God's predestining of those people to a purpose. And that purpose is to be conformed to the image of his son. So if you're a Christian today, uh, that is God's goal for you. To be conformed to the image of his son. To put it simply, to make you like Jesus. More and more like Jesus. You see, in your sin, you have fallen short of the glory of God. You have fallen short of the glory of the image of God in you. And the great work of salvation is to, this is, and the goal of God's salvation, to restore in you that image. And he's doing that through the ministry of the Holy Spirit as he is changing you and helping you and transforming you from one degree of glory to another. And the fact that it is predestined for every Christian is a great source of encouragement and hope for every Christian believer. God will do this and it cannot not happen. He will do it and it cannot not happen. He is determined 
has determined that it is so. Now, some Christians do find that a difficult doctrine. It raises all kinds of questions. But again, our reference point is Jesus, whose life, betrayal, and death were predetermined by the sovereign purpose of God. And we thank God that there was a purpose, a plan, and that God had the power to bring it about. And all it's saying is that God can can and does sovereignly work salvation for his people. He predestined it. There's three more links in the chain. And these three are now connected with how it actually works out in your life. And the first of those is that they are called. These people who are foreknown and predestined are called. In other words, there comes a point for every Christian where, they, as it were, they seem to obtain a new set of years. It sounds a bit strange. But they, suddenly, they see and a new set of eyes where they begin to hear the voice of God speaking in his word. And they begin to see the Lord Jesus Christ in a new way. And their hearts are transformed. This is the calling of God. That God calls. The voice of God, as it were, breaks through the noise and the clatter of our lives, which arrests us and captures our attention. And think about it. This is what happens when you fall in love with someone. Um, You can be in the middle of a large crowd. There's a lot of commotion. But you're able to pick out the voice of your beloved. (laughs) Don't you find that? You can pick out the voice of your beloved. And this is what it's like, coming to, to hear the call of God. It's like in the midst of all the commotion of your life, you hear God call you. In a special way. It's not just saying uh, you hear a sermon. Because, um, but it hap- often will happen through a sermon. It's not just that you hear people like me speaking. But you hear God speaking. And God, as it were, seems to break into your life. In a glorious new way. And so God effectually calls His people. Those whom he has foreknown. Those whom he has predestined. At due point in time, he calls them to himself. And you cannot but respond to it. Then fourthly, he he justifies them. He justifies them. And we've seen this already. We've seen this in the, the earlier chapters of Romans. Where the hearers of the gospel drop everything. Respond in faith, and through that faith, the new Christian receives the righteousness of God. The righteousness that is found in Christ. Righteousness that they could never have by themselves. And when we receive that righteousness, that's what we mean by being justified. That you're considered to be just and righteous before God. The glory of the gospel justifies sinners. And lastly, they are glorified. Glorified. And though Paul is using the past tense here, he is clearly looking forward to glorification to come. The final completion 
of that work. Of bringing a believer into the conformity, into conformity with the image of his son. Which involves the transformation of our lives, both inwardly and the resurrection of our bodies. And in that great parade, in the unveiling of the sons of God, we will be declared to all of creation. The glorious sons of God and all to his glory. Friends, as we finish, Paul is seeking to encourage every Christian today. He wants you to know that in the midst of whatever we face in our daily lives, the Holy Spirit is present, praying on our behalf. And he is acquiring for us what we need in that moment, even though we, all that we may be able to do is to groan. But he also wants us to know how God the Father has been active and will remain active on our behalf in eternity past and into eternity future and will bring us safe and safely home to his glory. Glorious encouragement for every Christian. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this wonderful panorama of salvation that is laid out before us. Thank you for the encouragement it gives to us. We pray that, Lord, you'd help us to meditate on these things, to to rejoice in them, uh, to use these truths to to lift us, as it were, above our circumstances, to see the glorious plan of God for our lives, for the lives of Christians, that all things work together for good, even though at times we don't understand all things. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.